Hi, it's Laura. Thanks for listening to What on Earth. You might have noticed we've been trying some new things lately. We want you to keep listening, and we also want to get even more Earthlings on board. So whether you're new or a longtime fan, here's what we want to know. What do we do best? What should we rethink? What do you want to see us try next? Please fill out our survey. It's at cbc.ca slash whatonearthpod. We're listening. This is a CBC Podcast. Well, the page has turned and a new year has begun. What better time to check in with some of the people we spoke to last year and they've got news to share. That includes news for farmers seeking support when and where they need it, especially as the climate changes. They don't have to come into an office. I have a lot of clients who I have conversations with in the combine, in the tractors. And for those living with disabilities, a breakthrough of sorts after a federal cabinet minister heard our earlier conversation. It focused on the lack of government attention to their needs when it comes to climate-related adaptation. The minister invited our guest, Sébastien Jodoin, to a meeting, and he'll tell us all about it. As well, a new Canadian program for those who simply don't have the money to pay for the switch from oil to heat pumps, and why that's still not enough. And we'll return to Aberdeen, Scotland. We visited last year to bring you the story we called The Trouble with Transition, focused on the challenges of making a so-called just shift away from oil and gas to renewable energy. One year later, it's still a work in progress. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Farmers can be on the front lines of climate change, as we've seen, and now a new nationwide initiative is coming to support them with any emotional fallout from all the tension, uncertainty, and destruction. It's an update to a story we first brought you last spring. We heard how B.C. farmers were coping after a year of heat waves, fires, and floods. Everything I lose, you know, is the house and my saffron crops and blueberries. Almost 90% of my crops are all gone, everything. Many farmers, they are already suffering with the mental health. I can't explain, you know, how bad they are affecting us, like mental health anxiety. You know, you feel guilty because you didn't lose as much as some people, but you just want to crawl back into bed and pull the covers over your head, but you can't because there's so many terrible things going on and, and you want to help. You can't stop and check in with yourself. What if you're not okay? What if you fall apart? You you can't really look it in the eye because it might overwhelm you. And falling apart's not an option. And those are the voices of two BC farmers, Julia Smith there and before her, Aftar Dillon. The struggles they're talking about are very familiar to Deborah Van Burkle. She's a registered psychotherapist, but also a dairy farmer in Odessa, Ontario and the founder of Ontario's Farmer Wellness Program. In April, Van Burkle told us there are gaps in mental health care for farmers across the country. We need to expand the Farmer Wellness Program across Canada or similar services so that all farmers can access services that are tailored for themselves and their families. And she's back now to tell us about a new project that aims to do just that. Deborah Van Burkle, hello. Hi, Laura. To start off, can you just remind us why do farmers need mental health care that's specifically designed for them? 
Well, with their unique stressors and unique schedules, we need something that's going to be able to be offered when they can get it, where they can get it. Right now, because of the lack of services available across Canada for farmers, we typically have, you know, the the standard counseling of, of being offered from, you know, nine to five type of thing. And it's not always when farmers are going to need it, especially when, you know, you have livestock or you have crisis or you have all of these things that are happening. So being able to offer different modalities, um, being able to offer it at different times is something that that's what they're saying they need right now. I remember you saying last time, too, that it was important for you to help farmers realize that there was no stigma in seeking treatment because they might be reluctant to seek care. Yeah, and and that's something that we're still focusing on, being able to kind of destigmatize this and really help them understand that this is something that's for them and it's offered from people who have the background or the education in agriculture. So understanding where they're coming from, farmers are reluctant to go in and seek that help because they don't feel that people are going to understand what they need or what their current stressors are because of the uniqueness to all of it. So being able to offer that right now is exactly what we're we're trying to do. So that since since we last talked, you've now launched this new center called the Canadian <laughs> Center for Agricultural Well-Being. So tell us about it. We sure did. That was something that was so near and dear to my heart that I'm so excited to say that we have launched the CCAW, so the Canadian Center of Agricultural well-being and it's a nonprofit organization that focuses on advancing research, education, program development along with building the sector capacity and growth in the field of agriculture and mental health. That sounds like a big task. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is, but it's so amazing because it's something that's needed. It's a national infrastructure so that we're able to connect, you know, the individuals, the farmers and the communities to evidence-based farmer-centric mental health. You're talking to farmers about what they want and need when it comes to mental health support. What else are you hearing from them? What I've been saying is exactly what we've been hearing from them. We need the resources out in the rural areas. We need physicians. We need nurses to understand what it's like for farmers and the ag industry. So being able to offer literacy courses to the rural physicians, to the nurses, to the ag industry experts, so that they have this understanding of what things are like. So when they're having these conversations with farmers, this information is in their mind. So we're able to communicate better. And when we're able to communicate better, we're destigmatizing all of that stoicness so that they're able to effectively get done what they need to get done. Well, that was kind of my next question, because um, as you say, they need mental health care from people who understand their challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard for people to get mental health supports as it is in the general population. Are there enough people in Canada to be able to support the farmers in that respect? Well, and that's something else that we're hoping that we're going to be able to establish and fill that gap as well, being able to create ag literacy courses, which is something that we're already working on, and being able to offer them to 
the people that are offering these services and these resources to the farming communities. So when the farmer comes in, when they're looking to access whatever service that they need to, that they know that that person has this information and they're better equipped to support and provide that service of care to them. Well, say you're talking to a a psychotherapist um, uh, who hasn't dealt with farmers before and you're trying to equip them with with the kind of information they need about farmers' reality. Tell me what you'd say to them. Well, this is the ag literacy course that we're hoping to offer them. And this is what we're doing by getting the grassroots involved, getting the farmers involved. What do they need to know? Dr. Brianna Hagen, who is our CEO of um, the CCAW, has been collecting that information. So looking at being able to help them connect the mental health to the daily activities of a farmer, where it comes from, right? That legacy as they grow up, right? That stoicness that exists on a farm and being able to take that and understand what that means for their mental health. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had to sit down with a with a psychotherapist um, who hasn't dealt with farmers before and given them advice? Yes, I actually help a lot of psychotherapists. <laughs> okay, with that so information tell me about, to do that. Tell me about that conversation. What do you say to them? So it's really kind of looking at what the main things are with a farmer, right? So what their daily schedules look like, especially if like livestock, let's say. So, you know, they're looking to get help or they're looking to get that service and they don't have time to go there. Well, it's not that they don't want to access services. It's that they need to be able to be met where they are. So whatever that means. So being able to kind of connect with them at the farm or be able to do it on the phone, like have that conversation on the phone, because there is that expectation for some people that, you know, they're going to come into the office and it's going to be at this time. It's not always the way it goes. And also looking at dealing with family. With farming, it's a family business. And so you have the family, but then you have the family business. And they do not always intertwine cohesively. So being able to understand what that means and help them understand the communication styles that exist. So how we have to be able to talk. And then also looking at the connection of the physical health, right? Because a lot of times farmers don't understand that the stress that they are experiencing manifests physically within them. And that's why, you know, they're more prone to getting like sickness or they're having depressive episodes, but they're not understanding that they're depressive episodes. So being able to understand where that comes from and helping them, the psychotherapist, make that connection so they're able to help inform the farmer what that all actually means. But that's where we're kind of going in the very near future, like in the next couple of weeks of starting that process of creating that egg literacy course. Maybe the, the counselors need to step out of their offices and get their feet dirty on a farm, too. But it might you help. Bet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you, you run a counseling service for farmers, and we know that. What have you been hearing from your own clients over the past year about the impacts of climate-related weather events on their mental health? Well, and and that's a big thing too, you know, talking to farmers like at certain times. So this is actually, so now it's very beginning of January. So in about a, not even a month, my the calls usually go up because that's when farmers are getting ready to, you know, seed and plant. And so that stress, that anxiety starts to kick in because they don't know what's going to happen because the way years have been going with the weather, we're unsure as to you know, is it going to be a wet spring? Is it going to be a dry spring? Am I going to be able to plant? Like what's going to happen? And then it continuously evolves over 
the summer and into the fall. And so they're really thankful that they have these resources and that there's somebody that they can talk to at any point. They don't have to come into an office. I have a lot of clients who I have conversations with in the combine, in the tractors. If it gets pretty heated or they get, you know, to an emotional state, they will tell me, they'll pull over and then we'll be you, able you to might, have... You're talking to them when they're in the combines and the tractors? You bet. <laughs> wow. Okay. I know. And and we have these conversations. And like I said, sometimes they will get pretty emotional. Then they'll tell me, they're like, I just got to pull over here. You know, if they want to come in face to face, we'll have that conversation too. But a lot of times I am having conversations with people while they're in the field, while they're working. Farmers are very, um, they, they need to be productive, right? They're task-oriented, multitaskers. There is, you know, specific conversations that I may not have with them while they're working in a tractor or in a combine, but we have that conversation at a later time. But yes, I will have conversations with them while they're working. Okay. I mm-hmm. mean, I mean, we know that farming can be stressful, as you're just talking about, during the best of times. But then we get to the disasters, the fires, the floods. Um, mm-hmm. so let's talk about that a little bit. How are you working to support farmers when catastrophes hit? So right now, we have been granted a project from the federal government to work on a small component of catastrophic events. So currently right now, Dr. Brianna Hagen is working um, with her research team and we're creating that project to start talking about what it looks like to create that toolkit for catastrophic events. And we are hoping in the near future to be able to expand on that and create another program to deliver across Canada nationally for catastrophic events. And you're working with the federal government on that? Yes. Um, A lot of the farmers that we've heard from said that one of the things that causes stress and anxiety during catastrophic events is not knowing whether or when financial support from the government will come. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. what you tell a farmer with those kinds of worries. So it's really kind of looking at the specificness of it. So with the crops, for instance, or, you know, like what happened when BC with the flooding. So the biggest thing is for them to just talk about what their fears are and validating those concerns, because at that moment, they're not going to have that gratification of knowing what the government, unfortunately, is going to do. So it's really just helping them understand where their fears are coming from, validating what that looks like, and then being able to help them figure out you know, specific coping mechanisms that are going to help at that moment until they can kind of find out the next step. Okay, we're in the dead of winter right now. Let's talk about your farm. What is it like there? Well, right now it's the so funny enough about the weather. So we had that wicked storm over Christmas where we had such bad snow that they closed all the roads. They took the plows off the roads. And then right after it's been like almost plus 10 for a straight week. So we now have no snow. I know it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And with weather like that, especially at this time, it messes with our brains because we're so accustomed as Canadians in specific areas that this is what the weather looks like. And now nobody knows what the weather looks like or what the weather is going to entail. Are we going to have enough water? You know, are we going to have enough snow so that the watershed and all that is going to be okay. And so we're just trying to take it as it comes right now and get things done. But it's a matter of looking at what things are are coming in the future and, and how we're able to kind of help so that 
we can make sure that people get the services and resources that they need. So what message would you send to farmers across the country about how to take care of their mental health in the coming months? So it's accessing services if if need be, you know, talking to people about what's going on and how they're feeling and, and what stressors they're experiencing. And then looking at what services are available in their area and now being able to look at something like this, which is the national infrastructure and understand that there's going to be additional programs, there's going to be additional resources that are available to them and that it's okay to have these conversations. We talk about the weather all the time. Farmers are notorious. That is the biggest thing. And I've said this since I started. If we can talk about our mental health, like we talk about the weather, we're, we're all going to be good because we're able to start working through that. As we become informed, as we have these conversations, we are able to, you know, destigmatize and really look at how to support each other through all of this. Well, I wish you and all the other farmers out there the best of weather in this coming year. And I thank you for talking to us again. Thank you. Deborah Van Berkel's news about the Canadian Centre for Agricultural Wellbeing is about helping farmers during tough times, so we wanted to check in with them as well. Now, earlier on, you heard Julia Smith. She's a farmer and a rancher in the Nicola Valley who lived through the 2021 floods. I can't believe it's already been a year. Yeah, it's gone really quickly. <laughs> um, what's it been like for me? I'm pretty tired, you know? I mean, I think I was already burned out going into to that. Yeah, just still feeling a lot of empathy for people. And there's people that aren't back in their homes, that people that never will be. And yeah, it's it's a lot. And she knows she and her neighbors need to look after not just their crops and their cattle, but themselves, especially as the challenges stack up. You know, within the lens of climate change, like we're always anticipating now, right? Whereas before, it was a surprise. It was a shock when something devastating happened. And now we're coming at it from the mindset of we're just waiting for the next thing now, right? We're always like mentally preparing ourselves. Yeah, like how do you build up those stores and that resilience in the world that we live in now? I don't know. Smith herself now takes a few minutes each morning to listen to a mindfulness meditation online. I guess I would say just do something even if it's just 10 minutes a day, whatever that is, that's how you you top up those reserves. As for the new Canadian Centre for Agricultural Wellbeing that Deborah Van Berkel shared with us earlier, we asked Julia Smith what she thought about that. I think we need to normalize mental health and having some intentional supports around that and people that are are going to engage with producers, just normalizing it and prioritizing it somehow for everybody can't be a bad thing. Many communities in Canada are in the grip of winter, and when temperatures plummet, it's time to turn up the thermostat. But what happens when you don't have enough money to do that? Here in Canada, uh, more than one in five Canadian households experience what is known as energy poverty. And with rising inflation and rising prices and so on, there are concerns that more households will be pushed into what is known as energy poverty. 
the federal government has yet to play a strong role in centering energy poverty, centering low-income households, and prioritizing them in the transition to a net-zero future. That's Abhi Kantamneni speaking on this program last spring. He's a research associate at Efficiency Canada at Carleton University in Ottawa, and we've invited him back to offer some solutions for low-income households. Abhi Kantamneni, welcome. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me back again. Well, thanks for coming back. Now, from Arctic temperatures on the West Coast to Ontario communities coated in ice, Canadians everywhere are really feeling the cold this winter season. What does that mean for the people who are struggling to pay for heating their homes? Oh, man. Yeah. So this winter is uh, going to be and is rough on um, a lot of households, especially households in the lower income. So the challenge here is that it's almost a perverse problem. The households that need energy efficiency the most or need to be able to upgrade their insulation or fix their leaky windows the most, uh, the households that would benefit the most from those upgrades are also, uh, unfortunately, the households that can least afford to be able to make their upgrades because they're already spending a significant amount of their incomes on paying for their high energy bills and meeting other household expenditures. Right, because I was going to say 2022, we know interest rates went up, inflation went up. 2023 isn't looking a lot better. There's talk of a recession and the cost of living becoming unmanageable for some people. So how do you see families coping this year? Unfortunately, I see a lot of families continue to struggle like they did last year, especially now with, like you pointed out, uh, rising interest rates, rising um, cost of energy, and um, without, you know, incomes keeping pace uh, with some of these rises. So for some people, it, it, it means that you are now stressed about uh, heating versus eating. And for some people, what it means is that no matter how much you crank up your thermostat, you, there are parts of your home that are cold because heat is just constantly leaving through uh, your windows and through your insulation. And for some people, what it means is that your cardiovascular or respiratory health issues are made worse because if heating doesn't reach all aspects of your home, uh, condensation increases in your home and there's mold can form in some parts of your windows. It can lead to like cognitive decline, uh, you know, and and inability to concentrate. So what energy poverty does and what these these challenges do is that whatever challenges you're experiencing with achieving well-being in your home, uh, inability to meet your energy bills exacerbates it and makes it significantly worse. And how, how does all that tie into climate? What what does all of that mean for climate? Well. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic question. So the federal government has um, promised to uh, transition our country and our economy to a net zero future. And as a part of that commitment, they've also uh, committed to leaving no one behind. But we're seeing now, today, uh, what this as we're transitioning to a climate future, low-income households that can't afford to switch to more efficient appliances, that can't afford to make energy upgrades to their homes, that can't afford to switch from, let's say, like an oil-based heat pump or a natural gas system to a more efficient heat pump, for example, those households are being left behind. And so on on a pragmatic level, we will not be able to get to a climate-ready future if we are leaving people behind. And the road to a net zero 2050 will have to go through every single home, which means we reduce energy usage in the home, 
switch our fossil fuels over to uh, to cleaner energy sources and so on. I have to point out that since we last spoke, there seems to be this shimmer of hope on the horizon. There's been a federal announcement focused on addressing home efficiency upgrades. Tell me what that offers. Laura, I am an eternal optimist. <laughs> uh, I see silver linings everywhere. So the federal government has recently announced a new program of about $250 million in federal funding to help low-income Canadians switch from oil-based heating to low-carbon heating sources. What gets me excited about this program is that it addresses some of the challenges that we talked about the last time I was on the show. One thing being that this funding uh, offers up to $5,000 upfront uh, to low-income households. So the focus is specifically on low-income households. They offer money upfront, uh, and they also pay for uh, non-energy upgrades, like for example, if you need to upgrade the panel in your home so you can fit uh, a heat pump, uh, some of the money can be used for that. Some of that money can be used for decommissioning your old oil heat system. And the other um, the thing I'm excited about is that it takes action on two fronts. One, it helps reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions from buildings and oil-based heating you know, contributes to greenhouse gas emissions and switching it over to low carbon heating sources like heat pumps uh, takes action both on energy poverty as well as emissions. So these are things that I like about the program. I, I sense a but. <laughs> <laughs> you know me so well. So yes, there are some challenges with this program. So first thing is we know from latest data from Statistics Canada that about 90% of um, low-income households spend average spending on home energy costs. 90% of that is on electricity and natural gas, and only about 10% of that uh, is on oil-based heating. So what this means is that this program, while it is path-breaking in many ways, it also does not reach uh, a lot of Canadians, and it does not need uh, reach a lot of Canadians that need it the most, especially Canadians that are already heating with electricity and natural gas. What I would love to see is this kind of thinking that the federal government has taken with you know, doing money upfront, having a focus on um, low-income households, having programs that can be stacked alongside existing programs, uh, working on emissions and energy poverty at the same time. And the one big piece that is missing from this existing program is that, okay, it'll help you switch from uh, oil-based heating to a heat pump. But what if your home is already leaking? You know, what if uh, you don't have adequate insulation? We would love to see a federal initiative that focuses on low-income households that does those things. It reduces the kind of overall energy usage of a house while making some of this money available up front so Canadians that need it the most can access it. And have you heard anything from, gov from the federal government that makes you think that will happen? We are seeing the government taking our recommendations seriously, uh, listening to people in the sector, uh, and, and coming out the programs accordingly. I remain resolute in my optimism that over time, uh, we will, at least we will certainly be pushing the government towards improving and filling these gaps. I remain optimistic, Laura. I hear that. Um, but I also wonder <laughs> how quickly you think the federal government needs to move in addressing energy poverty to reach the country's 2050 climate goals. Um, we the best time to have started would have been 46 years ago, <laughs> uh, and the next best time to start this would be today. We are closer to 2050 now than we are to what is it 1990? Isn't that a scary thought? Uh, uh, yes. So we're <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're uh, every and you know every 
every time the sun rises and sets, we get closer and closer to our 2050 goals. And so we need to start ramping up uh, these programs uh, today. Abhikantam Naini, stay warm and thank you for talking to me. I'm doing my best, Laura. Thank you for having me. We reached out to Natural Resources Canada for a response to Kentam Nani's critique of the oil-to-heat pump affordability grant. It didn't respond to his criticisms. It says the grant is just one of a suite of practical solutions available to help Canadians save money and fight climate change by making where they live more energy efficient. We know the news can be relentless, and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes. When news breaks, our reporters are there, across Canada and around the world. We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner. I'm Tom Harrington. I'm Stephanie Skanderis. We host Your World Tonight. New episodes every night, seven days a week. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. And now we are off to the city of Aberdeen, nestled on Scotland's eastern shore. Uh, those lovely sounds take me back. That is St. Fittick's Park, and we took listeners there early last year. What on Earth producer Molly Siegel joins me now with an update. Hi, Molly. Hey, Laura. Now, some listeners may have heard our documentary, The Trouble with Transition, about a year ago. We went to Aberdeen, where the city is at a crossroads. For decades, offshore oil and gas have boosted the economy, but now new industries like offshore wind are starting to take off. And this is a kind of shift that's happening around the world, including here in Canada. And for those who may be new to this story, Maybe, Molly, you can give us an update, a reminder about where St. Fittick's Park fits into all of this. Yeah, absolutely. So this this park is a very well-loved community green space and wetland. But it became entangled in a debate over what climate change means in UK's oil capital, the city of Aberdeen. Now, you'll remember Leslie Ann Maholland. She was our tour guide there. Well, there's a little more hen there. Ah, uh, Leslie Ann, yes, of course, introducing me to moorhens, which I hadn't seen before, and a whole bunch of other ducks and waterfowl gathered in the wetlands that she showed us. Yeah, those sounds just take me right back. Okay, but the park is actually not considered a wilderness area, though it's next to the North Sea. It, it's actually right in the middle of all these apartment buildings, all these homes, and there's industry nearby, like an incinerator. And I, I remember how important Leslie Ann said that the nature and the wildlife are not just to her, but to that entire community. Yes. And of course, when we spoke to her, the park was at risk of being rezoned for development. There's a company called Energy Transition Zone, or ETZ, that was formed and it's pushing for development related to the energy transition. The company wanted access to this piece of land, saying it will support things like offshore wind development, hydrogen and other activities. And this company is backed by 
big business names. So that makes some people in the community a bit skeptical of just how green the development will end up being. Uh, this is a little bit of what Leslie Ann had to say when we met up with her. As you can see, we are getting encroached by industry here in our green space. And we just felt it was just pushed along because of this idea of energy transition. But this is our park. This is what our families enjoy. This is where we walk our dogs. This is where we take exercise. All the things that we've been told to do now, you know, create biodiversity, get out and get more exercise. Think of your mental health and well-being. It's the opposite of what, what, what will happen if the park is removed. It goes against everything. It goes against the twin uh, crisis of biodiversity and environmental issues. So it's, it's just wrong. Ah, that passion in her voice. We know Leslie Ann and others were really pushing hard to protect the park. So, what's the news? Okay, so the park has been caught up in bureaucracy for a while. Uh, The proposed rezoning had to go through the local council, but because there was this opposition, the development plan was escalated to the Scottish government for review. And the reporter, which is the formal title for the person reviewing the concerns, came back with a decision. Now, the park has been rezoned, and Aberdeen's local development plan specifically approves a portion of the park for the company to use. This can happen, provided that the developments are for energy transition. Oh, no, that's not really what Leslie Ann was hoping for, was it? No, it really is the opposite of what she was hoping for. And I asked her how she felt at the time when she learned this news. Personally, absolutely shattered. Um, you know, I was really very, very upset about it. Um, but I think probably I expected the decision because it's very difficult to fight against these powers. Um, so I, I half expected it, but I couldn't really believe it when it, when it was confirmed. All right. But that that's one thing. Does she really think that parts of the park will end up being developed? Well, she's kind of waiting and watching, but she has some hope because, in her opinion at least, the effort of developing and meeting certain requirements would result in in a company putting more in than she thinks they would be getting out of this. Uh, And that's because the decision did include a couple of conditions. There should be no net loss to biodiversity in the park, and development needs to work around the wetland there. And we do think the conditions that were set make it really very difficult for anyone, very difficult and undesirable for anyone to develop. The acreage is so small, it would be, I would imagine it would be difficult to make a lot of money from, you know, and what business could they attract that could um, fulfill their needs as a business. But but Laura, the the company, to be clear, is still moving ahead. It it hasn't said anything about, you know, not moving ahead with this plan to develop part of the park. And and let's just be clear about something else for listeners who, who may not be familiar with the story from last year. Leslie Ann herself is not against energy transition. No, not at all. I I would consider her a bit of a climate advocate. She wants Scotland to transition to renewable energy. And of course, a city like Aberdeen has really benefited from the offshore oil industry. Um, But we also know that green spaces like this one are part of how we can better adapt to climate change. So Leslie Ann's argument is that the park is already doing important climate work. It's already doing its part. She says there are other areas in the city that she thinks could be used as hubs to support these new industries like offshore wind and hydrogen. It is important to know that part of the surrounding neighborhood is considered the poorest in Aberdeen. 
And actually, it has a designation as deprived by the Scottish government. It's an indication, I think, of how people feel about the injustice for us, our community, that they are saying, wait a minute, this is, this is ridiculous. Why is this happening? Certainly there's a lot of solidarity with us and complete horror at how we're being treated. The incinerator, the uh, sewage treatment works, the landfill site, you know, the harbour. You see the encroachment of industry all around that small piece of green space that's more important to us. So it sounds like Leslie Ann isn't quite ready to give up. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, you know her. She's not sitting back. Yep. No, she's very passionate. And uh, on Thursday, actually, there'll be a whole group protesting uh, to, to save this park. Uh, they'll be outside the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh. Um, and of course, in the meantime, she still spends time touring people around the park like she did with us. We took a visitor around last week. Uh, who was just who was a very keen bird watcher and had had saw some birds that he hadn't seen in the wild before. So it's a very important site. Another interesting thing that Leslie Ann told me was that there's also been a really big outcry from doctors and nurses speaking out about how important this green space is to have for our health and other things. Well, I think we have so much support and we have a tremendous amount of support from medical professionals in the area and beyond, and, and we are still taking visitors to the park who cannot believe that this is happening. Climate change, loss of biodiversity, better health improvements, I mean, this is what people are trying to create. Um, I mean, who knows, really, how the dice will fall, but, you know, we are confident as we can be that we have the correct argument for this to stop it, because it just doesn't make sense. All right, what does the company ETZ say about all of this? I did reach out to them, uh, and I had specific questions in regards to Leslie Ann's concerns and others. Instead, a spokesperson referred me to a statement that the company released in November. In it, the company chief executive, Maggie McGinley, says she appreciates the concerns, but believes the investment is needed to, quote, ensure Aberdeen is positioned to capitalize on the vast opportunities provided by new and green energies, particularly offshore wind. And there is the heart of this, right? It's this idea that that you need to do something to, to deal with the impacts of climate change, and yet you're deciding to do it in a space that will really actually help deal with the impacts of climate change. So hearing this update now, it's something that is playing out around the world. That that pinch between development, developing land keeping it intact, not just for wildlife, but for other benefits like carbon storage, water filtration, or even just well-being. Yes, no, exactly. And I, I actually think this is why this story um, has re- resonated well beyond Aberdeen, because it is symbolic, as you're saying. So I think we're only going to see more of this type of tension playing out. And for any listeners who are interested, um, they can listen to the documentary, the full documentary that, that we did in January of 2022 by going to our website, um, because it's not just this conflict. There are other ones playing out there as well with with, uh, the men, mostly men, but some women who work on the oil rigs uh, and what their futures look like and what what it's going to mean for them, including the uh, infamous visit that Molly and I made to (laughs) a pub on the outskirts of Aberdeen where the oil rig workers come after being off the platform. It was a pretty interesting discussion. And thank you for taking us back there, Molly. Of course. My pleasure, Laura. Thank you. 
last time we spoke to Sébastien Jodoin, he detailed a revealing problem with plans to grapple with a changing climate. Something was missing. We collected all of the world's uh, climate adaptation and mitigation policies, and we discovered that less than a third of countries even mention disability in any way. And most of the time when they do, it's pretty cursory. Jodoin called it a, quote, clear violation of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And he should know. He's the Canada Research Chair in Human Rights, Health and the Environment at McGill University in Montreal. Jodoin is back with me today to talk about new research on what he says are the shortcomings of Canada's climate policies. And he has some good news on the world's progress. Sébastien Jodoin, welcome back. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Okay, can you first of all remind our listeners, what does disability have to do with climate change and climate action plans? Well, uh, first of all, people with disabilities are disproportionately affected uh, by severe weather events caused by climate change. And also, uh, they can be also adversely affected by measures to combat climate change. So if you have inaccessible programs around changing transportation or energy use, those can actually reinforce barriers for people with disabilities if they're not designed in an inclusive way. And what about when when some sort of climate-related event happens? Give me an example of how that might have an effect on someone with a disability. Yes, well, what we've seen in Canada, for instance, are the two uh, deadly heat waves uh, of Montreal, July 2018, and Vancouver in 2021. And uh, the data from those two events um, showed that 75% of the victims uh, had disabilities. So uh, even in Canada, uh, if you have a disability, it puts you at great risk for dying in these events that are only going to become more frequent and also more intense uh, due to climate change. How does that translate with for perhaps in a heat dome? What, what, would norm, what would happen that you say puts people living with a disability at greater risk? Yeah, so uh, there's a number of things. Um, you might have an underlying condition that makes you more uh, sensitive uh, to heat. Uh, so we're looking at, for instance, people who take certain medications for psychiatric conditions, looking at people uh, with cardiovascular or conditions or diabetes. So you do have that underlying medical condition that might put you at risk. But the real issue is that nothing has been put in place to ensure your safety uh, during one of these events, to communicate with you uh, and to provide you access to the sort of services that you need to stay safe. So, for instance, what we saw in Vancouver was that uh, the cooling shelters uh, were often not accessible, that there were lots of populations that were not uh, communicated with, or there was no plan to communicate with them. And so people uh, basically died, right, from from exposure to heat in a country as wealthy as ours. It doesn't make any sense. Now, the last time we spoke, we talked about how countries around the world are excluding people with disabilities um, from the climate action plans. And this time around, you focused on Canada. What are your findings? Yeah, so what we did is we looked at all of the policies on climate change adopted by the federal government. We looked at all of the ones adopted uh, by the provinces. And we also collected the policies of the uh, five largest municipalities in Canada. So we looked at around uh, more than 80 policies in all. And we looked again at whether they mentioned people with disabilities, whether they had any measures to enhance their their safety or include them in decision-making around climate change. Two-thirds of these policies actually mentioned uh, people with disabilities at least once. Uh, But then when you looked at concretely, is there anything in here uh, 
to uh, include people with disabilities in decision making or to ensure their safety, to design policies and programs in an accessible way. Unfortunately, uh, we really couldn't find anything. Your relationship with the research is not academic alone. You have multiple sclerosis. I'm wondering if that affected your own reaction to what you learned. I always say my experience of disability is uh, a privileged one. So um, I have the resources to, you know, have air conditioning and adapt to uh, the different conditions that affect my, um, my MS. Uh, but it's the people who don't have those resources, who don't have that education, uh, who are most affected. And these are the people who are being left behind. So it's troubling uh, for me from the perspective of, of, you know, thinking about others in my situation who don't have the ability uh, to cope with, uh, with these changes. I'm wondering also how you can expect local governments to be thinking about people with disabilities and including them uh, in their plans when the federal government hasn't done so in its own climate policies. Thanks to the interview that I did with you, uh, I ended up being contacted with all sort by all sorts of governments actually across Canada, including federally. Uh, I've met with many different officials uh, and um, the two, two lead ministers, um, Mr. Qualtrough and Mr. Guy Bowen. And that's one of the, Carla Qualtrough, who is the minister responsible for people living with disabilities, and Stephen Guilbeault, Minister of Climate Change and Environment, right? Yes, yes. So I met with both of them. And, and, and one of the messages that I had for them and that I've had for other officials is that, uh, yeah, the federal government uh, should be playing a leadership role here, uh, setting an example. Um, there already are in place uh, different programs by which the federal government will support uh, adaptation planning by um, uh, municipalities that will also support adaptation research um, across the country. And just this past year, they have uh, put together Canada's first ever national adaptation strategy. So when this document came out um, in early December, uh, well, we have, you know, pretty much the, 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 the people who work in the niche world of climate adaptation, we were all, you know, looking at this document. I wanted to see, did they mention people with disabilities? This is a new document, just came out uh, in December. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there's, there's one reference uh, to people with disabilities. There's nothing in place um, in this policy to assess uh, the needs of people with disabilities in adaptation planning. There's nothing to ensure the resilience. And there's something really weird, actually, about this, uh, this strategy is they have, uh, they like talk about the heat dome event. So they have like a little box in the strategy where they talk about the heat dome. And in, the, and in this little explainer of the heat dome, they mention uh, that the elderly were more at risk. And they mentioned that people who live in low income neighborhoods were more at risk. But they didn't mention the actual group that had the, mo- the highest death rate which is people with disabilities. So that I thought was really strange. It sort of shows how far we have to go here in terms of even recognizing uh, disability as uh, a key factor here that, that it influences whether you will survive uh, this kind of event. So what does that tell you about your meeting and, and what effect you had? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I was really encouraged uh, by that meeting and the, the two ministers uh, seem to be really committed, especially Minister Caltro. Uh, to um, to this issue, uh, but I I have I've realized of course now that you know you're talking about a huge decision making process and a huge bureaucracy and even if the, even if you meet the two you know ministers who say oh my god we need to do, we need to do something different we should do this it's obviously not going to happen overnight uh, so I'm hoping there this is the last um, 
there's a final step of consultations uh, around this strategy that will stretch out over the next three months. And uh, we are working with other organizations of people with disabilities to put together a submission um, to the government to ensure that those concerns are met. Because um, basically, the opportunity here is to have uh, what could be the first really disability inclusive adaptation strategy in, in the world. And it's a real missed opportunity if the, and, and also, again, a violation of Canada's responsibilities under international law and, and under Canadian law to not do so. Well, who knows? Maybe they're listening to the radio again and you'll get another yeah. phone call. From exactly, me. exactly. <laughs> um, you, you were talking about other invitations from, uh, or other uh, contacts you've had from other governments. You're usually based in Montreal, but later this month you're going to be in Victoria. What brings you there? Well, so uh, people from the um, BC Climate Action Secretariat, uh, which you know is responsible for uh, everything to do with climate change in, in BC, they've reached out to me and they were looking at uh, getting advice as to how to make their, um, their new adaptation strategy more uh, disability inclusive. Uh, and that conversation led us to uh, actually thinking about, should I, could I come in to do a workshop? Uh, on disability inclusion for all of the staff. So it's an opportunity, again, to sort of build that capacity, build that knowledge, and really get a long-term thinking around disability inclusion in climate decision-making, because that's ultimately what we need. We, we can't just respond to, you know, the number of deaths in a, in a heat wave, or we can't just sort of have to respond uh, to, you know, a new sort of infrastructure program that actually doesn't have very high accessibility standards. We really need this thinking to be to be there from the get-go. Let's uh, let's pull it out into the international sphere now. Since we last spoke, is there any progress to report on the international front? Um, so internationally, uh, you have Vanuatu, which released its new uh, nationally determined contribution where states set out what they're going to do to meet their goals under the Paris Agreement. And what we saw in this NDC, that is the first one, um, the first plan of its kind that includes uh, lots of measures for uh, including people with disabilities in uh, climate decision-making, uh, communicating with them, uh, and uh, funding commitments you know, to fund programs and projects to enhance their resilience to climate change. So that's really encouraging to see um, one state do that. And you know, if a small island state like Vanuatu can do this, then there's really no excuse for uh, Canada or any other uh, any other country really not to do so. Uh, so that's one positive, um, I would say, or a bright spot in our updated analysis. Uh, and the other actually is something south of the border. So uh, part of the new uh, Biden infrastructure uh, plan, uh, part of that uh, plan has a commitment to put hundreds of billions of dollars towards retrofitting uh, existing uh, transportation systems. So as part of sort of an effort to decarbonize, right, transportation in the United States, there's a commitment there to also enhancing the accessibility of these existing uh, infrastructures. And again, if, if the United States can do it, there's really no reason why this can't be part of the new sort of massive green infrastructure program that will be released uh, by the federal government this year. And Sebastian, as you keep fighting the good fight and, and getting the meetings with the ministers and then get being disappointed, by, at least initially, by what you see, what gives you the inspiration to keep pushing? What keeps me going? I mean, I guess one is just uh, the sense of, of urgency that this needs to happen and being impatient. 
but also seeing that actually we are getting traction. Uh, you know, not not out here alone in the wilderness. At least there are there's you know interest in in, in moving forward. And then of course uh, for me, right? It's just it's just how life works, right? I was someone a specialist in climate change. And seven years ago, in an emergency room, was diagnosed with MS, and that sort of changed my trajectory in all sorts of ways. And so, I'm the climate expert who has MS. I have to work on disability inclusive climate action. You know, it's just the way it is. So, um, so yeah, that keeps me going because I have to do it. Well, Sebastian Jodoin, happy New Year, and I I think we'll be talking to you again. And thank you. Thank you so much. And we reached out to Carla Qualtro, the Minister of Disability Inclusion, and Stephen Guilbeault, the Minister of Climate Change. We asked them why Canada's national adaptation strategy doesn't contain Sebastian Jodoin's suggestions for including people with disabilities. They didn't respond by our deadline. All right, now for a brief look at some news on the climate front this week. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson has told CBC News he plans to introduce the long-awaited Just Transition legislation early this year. It's supposed to set out the federal government's plans to ensure those working in the fossil fuel industry can make the shift to other jobs outside that sector. In the United Kingdom, there's news of a change of tactics for the group Extinction Rebellion. Members are well-known but often disliked for blocking traffic and gluing themselves to roadways. The group's Claire Farrell told CBC's As It Happens that it's pausing actions that affect the general public as it tries to engage more supporters. We haven't said we're never going to do anything that annoys anyone ever again. (laughs) We've just said, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to avoid getting in ordinary people's way. So all we're saying is for all those people who've been saying over and over again, we agree with what you're saying. We think it's very serious. We don't think enough is being done, but we don't like what you do. We're going to say, okay, so this time, come with us. Now, there's no word yet from Canadian chapters of the group whether they plan any similar stand down. And an unveiling of a new electric car we first told you about in May of 2021. It's called the Aero, and it's an electric car made in Canada with almost all Canadian parts and technology. The world got its first peek at the Consumer Electronics Showcase in Las Vegas. It's not being mass-produced. Instead, it's meant to showcase the Canadian auto industry's skill in both sourcing the material for and building EVs. And i got to say, it looks pretty nice, too. And just a note about next week's program, climate education is evolving in Canadian post-secondary schools, with teachers finding new ways to ease worries and communicate solutions. At the University of British Columbia, two professors are traversing new territory. Their climate course focuses less on scientific data and more on emotions, values and human connection. Next week, we'll hear from climate educators from different disciplines all across the country. They're shaping lesson plans for the future generation of climate leaders. That's all for this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper, Kiernan Green and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.